Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very, very exciting guest, a guest that has done the full cycle himself, actually bootstrapping all along without really investors, you know, on, on his big, big exit that he did a few years ago. And I find that many of you that are watching and that are listening are going to find his story super inspiring. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Kerry Smith. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Alejandro. Nice to be here. So originally born in San Diego, and I know that you moved quite early on, but tell us about the upbringings. Oh, gosh. Well, we uh, moved uh, all over the country when I was a child, and uh, for no particular reason, when I think about it, or at least any particular reasons that I've known about, I think that when people ask me where I'm from now, or at least as a child, I say most of the time as a teenager, I spent around Washington, D.C. Uh, since that time, I went to school in Chicago and, and moved again. I, I'm fairly uh, peripatetic. So uh, we wound up here after many years in Austin. We started the fan business, the big-ass fan business in Lexington, Kentucky in 1999. So those are the places I think that are most important to us, the latter being where the uh, Unorthodox Ventures is, uh, our VC firm is uh, located. And we'll walk through those in just a little bit, but rewinding back a little bit more in time, you know, right after, you know, when you were like uh, really in those early years, you thought that perhaps going to work for somebody else, you know, was the way to go. And you actually got into the insurance business, but you also got out of it very quickly. So what happened there? I always think that I can work for other people, and I, I really think that I can. It, it, and maybe that's not true, though. I, I had always thought about starting my own company uh, after working several years in the insurance business. There was no particular reason. It was just it was it was not it was not especially interesting. It was relatively boring, and I don't know. I mean, you know, you're, I, mean, I was in my twenties. I wanted to do something interesting insurance isn't especially interesting. So I decided not knowing any better. What I did was uh, I went home one day, asked my wife if I could sell the house. And she said, sure. And we did. And we started a business. 
And I know that the first business or the first uh, path or journey into, into, into doing your own thing was building a company with your own father. And I know that the outcome was perhaps not the one that you would have hoped for, but I'm sure it was full of lessons. So how was that for you? Well, I think the most important lesson is you probably shouldn't go into business with your father. Uh, other than that, we <laughs> learned, I learned quite a bit. It was, it was quite interesting simply because my father had no real experience in business. And so I had to learn it more or less from the ground up. And uh, I had to get involved in sales and marketing. And I had to write a lot of articles. I did a lot of research. It was great, though I don't think, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, suppose that anybody else wanted to do it. I certainly wouldn't recommend it because I think I had three or four years learning though it took me 12 years to do that. So it was, it was all in all, it was kind of a waste of time. Uh, though it put me in a situation, for good or for bad, where uh, I couldn't do much of anything else other than start another business. And uh, But again, you learn a lot when you're doing it yourself. We didn't have any money. We had to do everything ourselves. Um, and... Uh, and it was, I guess it was a good education uh, as regards that, because I certainly knew how to do it after that. So what was that uh, key takeaway out of that experience that you knew that you would definitely apply to your next company? I think the main thing is that you have to know your audience. You have to know your market. Uh, the one thing that I took from the first company to the fan company was the knowledge of the industrial facility market. I certainly knew what the problems and who the players were in the in the particular uh, or in the specific uh, facilities. That's why we were a big part of why we were successful with a fan company because we knew we knew everybody. I mean, I don't mean individually, but I knew we knew who our buyers were, what their interests were, what their concerns were what their budgets were, which made a big difference in being successful. And in your case, I mean, obviously after this experience with your father, I mean, you were pointing to it, to, to your next company. I mean, how, how did you come across, you know, the idea and what was that process of bringing it to life? As I said, one of the things I did a lot of uh, from the beginning was marketing and a lot of the marketing because we couldn't afford to go outside ourselves uh, we did the marketing in-house, and I wrote, and I did a lot of research, but I wrote a lot of articles, and I knew a lot of editors at various publications, and this was pre-internet, so it was a situation where you could actually uh, get to know the editors, and editors had problems of their own with the various trade publications. They were always looking for articles. They were always looking for content. They call it filling the news holes so that they can... Uh, sell advertising. And um, I think I was able to take that and with, I don't know if it's something I, I well, I guess it did come from the first company because it was uh, the desire or the uh, acknowledgement of the fact that you have to educate people, especially with, as relates what we were working with, which was evaporation of uh, water in the first company and then uh, air movement and human physiology in the in the big fan company uh, so 
those were what we concentrated on and and that's what I was able to bring to the to the van company and that was that worked to our advantage and this obviously was uh, what led into into big ass fans your biggest success today so um tell us about you know big ass fans i mean how how did you come up with a name i mean what what an interesting name well actually it wasn't i didn't come up with a name when we uh, we started the company and we initially called it HVLS fan company high volume low speed fan company because what we did was we had a very very large diameter fan you're talking 20 24 feet in diameter and it was powered uh by a one and a half two horsepower motor so very very low power fan it moved very slowly but it moved uh, an incredible amount of air and uh so the hvls was a good descriptor we thought but inevitably, when somebody called us on the telephone, a potential customer, uh, we would say HVLS Fan Company, and and they would respond with pause and say, hey, are you those guys that make those big-ass fans? And we're not the sharpest knives in the drawer, but um, we thought, well, damn, that's a much better name. And so we <laughs> changed the name of the company. And again, I, I tell you what's interesting about that is you have to listen to your customers, and we did in that case. But what was funny about it was we got an awful lot of pushback, which again is just attention. And it was funny. It was funny to get the pushback, and so I think it defined, in a lot of senses, uh, the culture of the company. Which was, I mean, we worked at this very, very hard. We continually developed new products, new markets. It was it was a lot of hard work, but at the same time, we didn't take ourselves too seriously. And I think that was indicated by the name. There were some people that didn't like it. We used to receive a lot of letters telling us that we were going straight to the seventh circle of hell. But on the other hand, there were a lot of people that, that thought it was funny and applauded our moxie. And, uh, and there's a lot more of those, the, for, the latter than the former. So it worked. So what was the business model of the company? I mean, how are you guys making money and, and, and all of that stuff so that the people listening really understand, you know, what was the model there? Well, we did everything ourselves. And again, maybe that's something I took from the first company, but we tried various, for example, we actually manufactured the fans we sold, literally put them all together, designed them, uh, constructed them, sold them, from uh, our factory in Lexington, Kentucky. That's where everything came from. We, uh, though we tried various forms of distribution, uh, inevitably what worked the best and what we finally settled on was selling it ourselves. And so we hired uh, salespeople, uh, sales managers. We distributed them throughout the country uh, and they sold the product. On the marketing side, we did all the marketing ourselves. We wrote everything ourselves. We placed all our ads. We designed all of our ads. Everything that we did, we did ourselves. When we went overseas, uh, we uh, purchased a motor company to manufacture a uh, residential fan. We wound up manufacturing that residential fan in Malaysia at a plant that we owned with our people. Uh, we distributed to the Far East via that plant. Um, but again, I think the, the, the main takeaway is that 
we did it ourselves. And so it was, and as you mentioned before, it was bootstrapped. And so I think that it, it differs uh, in quite a, quite a number of ways from a lot of companies that we see uh, ourselves uh, today, because they have a tendency to want to, to have other people do, I mean, the design, the manufacturer, lots of times the manufacturer goes to China, it's second rate. The Chinese, if, it, if it's a good idea, they're going to take it from you. That's the way it works, regardless of your IP. I think that, that, that doing everything ourselves in the States uh, allowed us to brand the product very strongly. We had like 200 and something patents, but I think the patents were much less important than the branding of the company. And a lot of that had to do with one, manufactured in the U.S. Secondly, uh, that in terms of customer service, uh, we if we made a mistake, uh, we took responsibility for it. We were very open about it, not only with the customer, we were very open with it, with the people that worked at the company, because so to let them know that it was fine to make a mistake, you simply had to take care of it. You had to make sure that the customer was was uh, was well taken care of. And of course, in addition to that, if you expect to have the best customer service, <clears throat> you've got to have uh, ex exceptional employees. And so we paid our employees 30% uh, more than was typical on the average in the U.S., 40% more than was average in, the, in Kentucky. So I think that the, if I think about business and I think about the way to run a business, the way it's, it's, it all comes down, uh, it's not that complicated. You've got to be transparent. It's, a gold, it's the golden rule. I mean, treat everybody the way you would want to be treated. And in the long run, it works out. I mean, it's karma. I mean, that's yeah. the way it happened for us. Um, and that's what I would suggest. That's what I've learned. And why didn't you raise any money? Carry. I mean, why bootstrapping this all the way to the exit? Well, um, the reason was that in 2017, I got a, I was written a check for $500 million and it belonged to me. It didn't belong to anybody else. And I was able to do with it as I pleased. And there was a couple of things going on there. We didn't raise money because honestly, uh, I was a financial illiterate and it never occurred to me. And during that time, it really, it just, it wasn't what, it wasn't what people were talking about. I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have done it anyway. I hope I wouldn't have done it because I don't know that it would have helped me, at least me personally. Now, I think that being on the other side of the table, that is the, the, the thing that money can do for you, but you have to be very careful with it because it's easy to spend uh, and you are trading equity for it, is that it can speed up the process if you know what you're doing with the money. If you don't know what you're gonna do with it and if you spend it uh, poorly, uh, then it's a total waste. We know a lot of people, we talk to a lot of people that have companies and we actually collected uh, over the last year, year and a half, about 40 of them where the founders had less than uh, majority uh, equity. And some of them, a significant uh, number of them had their, their equity holdings in the single digits, which I think is uh, close to a crime. It's certainly 
not a place you would ever want to be because most of these businesses aren't worth that much. Even if they were, I mean, even in the best scenario, they wouldn't be worth that much. And so I say worth what? Worth $100 million. They're not worth that. But even if they were, if you had started a business and and sweated through everything, and at the end of the day, uh, you sold the business for $100 million bucks and you only had 6%, that's not such a big deal. That's just not where you want to be. And so though I am a proponent of, t- of, uh, of uh, funding businesses to a degree, but only when they know what they want to do with the money and they spend it wisely. And most businesses, young businesses, don't have a very good business plan. That's something we try to help them with. But it's easy to do that. It's, it's something, it's, a, it's like getting a tattoo on your forehead. I mean, it may seem like a good idea at one point, but you got to live with that stuff. And um, uh, if you're successful and you have an exit that's, that's reasonably good, you're simply not going to walk away with a whole lot of money. And you have to yeah. keep that in mind. Of course. I mean, I think that also, you know, it depends on who you're raising the money from, no? Because in some instances, it's all about having sophisticated people that can lift up the phone and help with distribution, with uh, subsequent rounds, with whatever that is. But I'm right there with you that I think that at an early stage, founders need to also think about their own exit versus what's going to be the, the company's exit. Because I see it many times where you see a company selling for $450 million and you see the founder walking away with nothing. And that's really awful to watch. So in your case, Gary, the acquisition, you know, how, how did it come about? I mean, what was that process like? Uh, and, and also how big was a big ass fans at, at that point? It was interesting. I, uh, I mean, as anybody that has run or started and run a company knows, you have those days where you go, oh my God, I'm just tired of this. This doesn't make any sense to me. And uh, I happen to have been very vocal about it uh, on one particular occasion. And I had a fellow that had come in as my CEO, gosh, maybe six, nine months before that, but he had come in and he actually was, um, had held positions in, in large corporations. And he said, really, Carrie, is that really true? Would you actually do that? And I said, well, for 500 million bucks, you're damn right, I would do it. And he said, well, you know, we can do that if you wanted. And I said, yeah, fine. And I really didn't think too much about it. But he actually went out and uh, made some calls and started bringing it together. And it, it took about a year altogether. But at any point in time, I think what made it interesting was I was more or less ambivalent about it. Uh, and my wife didn't believe it for one second, not even one second, um, that we would sell the company. Because, I mean, you do something for that long period of time. Uh, most people don't think about shifting. And I certainly wasn't thinking about that. But as it progressed, um, it got more interesting. But at the end of the day, uh, we had some some uh, disagreements with the PE firm, and as you will. I mean, that's normal. And I told them, the, I, they came back with a lower number. And I said, you know, you can just hang it. I really don't care because I want what I want, and I don't want anything less than that. Um, And that's it. And it was true, because I really didn't care. 
And uh, I think that when you're looking at a situation where you're looking to sell your business, that you have to be in a situation that you are ambivalent because uh, the people that are looking to buy your business have done it more than once and you may have only done it once. Uh, and they're very, very adept at, um, at trying to talk you down and, uh, and, and buy it for just a little bit less. And you have to be of the mind that, no, that's it. I don't care. End of story. I mean, get out of my life. Uh, and I think that was important and that's the way it worked for me. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. I think that being on attached to the outcome is the way to go because that's definitely going to send a message to the people across the table. Yes. So, so in your case, Kerry, what was it like when, when all of a sudden you see on the table a check for $500 million? It was kind of cool. i tell you what was cool about it, and, and which was that I had uh, for 10 years prior to selling the company established this SARS program, which is basically a stock option, FAM stock. And uh, because we were op we were operating in Lexington, Kentucky, which is it's an okay little town, but most people don't want to move there. It's pretty, but that's about it. And um, uh, so I did that in order to attract uh, talent and also to award the people or reward the people that were the best workers. And all of it was great, and we were valued every year. Uh, but I thought that in the back of my mind that even though people got these shares, it's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We don't know what they're worth. You know, nothing's ever going to happen because all Kerry talks about is a 200-year company. So, And, and I, I thought, well, it would be nice to be able to get to a point where the number was big enough so these people, that it would, they could actually say to themselves, holy cow. What a deal. I made a great decision in coming to work here. This is, you know, this is going to work out for me. And I thought at 500 million that that's, that was a good number. And as I mentioned uh, before, when we were talking that, um, that, that we made of those people, there were over a thousand people at one point uh, working in the company, but there were about 150 that actually were and if you run a company, you know this. I mean, there's you have a lot of people, and a lot of them are nice people. But but uh, 150 out of a thousand is about what you would expect in terms of being exceptional. And to take uh, that money, the 50 plus million, and give it to these people, I don't think they expected it. I mean, they knew it was coming after the company was sold. Uh, but but. Almost every single one of them told me that it changed, that it was going to change their lives, which was cool. I don't know if it did or not. Um, but there were 15 of them that were multimillionaires and 15 or 16 more that were millionaires and the rest were, you know, less than that. But it was everybody, it was, uh, there were people driving forklifts that, that walked away with 70 or 80,000 bucks. Um and uh, a number of these people started their own companies, which was really the my hope that that they would see that this was a path, and hopefully that they would in turn uh, do the same sort of thing for the people that worked with them. Because being successful, it's a lot of work, but it's also it's luck, and 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 um, I mean, you know, it's it's just a way to pay back. And I thought it was cool, and that's the best thing that 
in my estimation, was sitting there looking at 500 million bucks. Uh, that was right before Uncle Sam walked in the room, because when un Uncle Sam walks in the room, then it's not 500 million bucks anymore. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was cool. It was, that was the coolest part of the whole thing. Because honestly, it doesn't make that much. I mean, it sounds, I mean, it's easy to say, but 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 the difference in terms of, I mean, you don't think about it every morning and it's not it's not really that important. What you do with it is what makes it important. A hundred percent. And and talking about now the um, the next chapter. Now you are running your 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 own investment type of operation via a firm called Unorthodox Ventures. So how did you? Why did you decide to go on the other side of the table and really you know do investments and 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 what are you guys doing there? Well, I you know you spend uh, a lot of time in manufacturing and then uh, you know building a company. It seems like. I think that you recognize that there are other people, other people that are very talented that are doing the same sort of thing. And you remember, because of the way we did it, it was it was self-financed. It's very, very difficult. And we also recognize that the money wasn't the big uh, part of this, as you mentioned before. It's the help. And when we look at this and we look at the typical VC, The typical VC is a banker, and, and the only people that know less about business than bankers are, are lawyers. And, um, and so we recognize that we can help these people step by step starting a business. And normally, the, the people we talk to really don't even have a business plan. And a business plan, I mean, a very tactical, I mean, you have to have a strategy, but a very tactical, you know, what do you do? How do you do it? Where do you go? Uh, who are the people you need to hire? What do they need to know? And all of this, they need as quickly as they can possibly get. And they're very ill-equipped. One, to make the plan. Two, to actually execute. And so what we try to do, or what we do do, is we, we build a plan with them. We build a plan to break even, because we're not building a plan to, you know, Series A, Series B. Uh, I mean, raising money isn't that really is not business. Uh, but we, what we're, our goal is, is to raise, is to, is to build a business so they can get to break even and actually have an operating business so they don't have to raise more money. Uh, we do that and we, we do that with the intent. And so far, we've been successful with it of, of, of making sure that the founder maintains the um, The majority of the equity, and I think that that's I think that that's being fair, and I think that that's something a lot of VCs because I don't know that they ever even think about it, and they're not that's not their mindset, it's not the business. Uh, but with us, we in essence become the C-suite of our group because we're just a bunch of operators. All the people here came from, or the majority of them came from the fan company, and they're engineers. And their software guys and gals and their um, people that opened offices, people that were project managers, uh, pre people that were product managers. Uh, and we can offer that help to our partners uh, and then help them hire the staff they need to do that so that we can step away and they can actually have a business uh, and feel good about it 
and we can feel good about it as well. So it's a slightly different uh, model. So if there's one question that I that I want to ask you here, Kerry, and and that is, imagine if I had the opportunity of of putting you in a time machine and and taking you back in time, and you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self, with that younger Kerry that was, you know, thinking about starting a company. You know, maybe it could be Vegas fans or maybe in the first company that you did with your father. If you had that chance to to really have a conversation with your younger self, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why, given what you know now? Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, I think that, I think that, the one thing that's come out of both sides, both businesses and what I'm doing today is, uh, is market research. I think when we started, I, and I think this is true a lot of a lot of founders, is that you imagine that you know the market, that you know what people want, that, that what, what you say is the way it's going to be. And in fact, that's not true at all. And uh, I know I thought that way. I thought that way until I was developed uh, in, in the fans, developed a fan that we spent several years on that was a complete bust. I mean, total bust. And I really did think this was the end-all, be-all of fans. It was a big commercial fan. And um, I think that what we spend a lot of effort on today and with the companies, even larger companies today, is is focusing on market research because what you think is right is not that that's not necessarily right and you can make huge mistakes and waste a lot of time uh, and money if you don't understand the market if you don't understand what the market's actually interested in and uh there's a number of ways of doing that but in essence you really do have to talk to the customer i mean you have to talk to the customer about the experience so many people we find today imagine that they don't really have to talk to anybody that, you know, if they're, if it's liked or if, you know, that they, they get approval, then that's enough. That tells them all they want. And that's just complete worse stuff. I mean, that's just not the way it is. And it takes a little bit of time and it takes a little bit of money, less money than you think. If you do it, if you do it right, do it yourself. Uh, and if you focus on small, you can't focus on, do they want my product? That's way too big. You have to focus on, on, on small questions, but you can learn an awful lot, save an awful lot and actually get to the market much, much faster. And that's the one thing I think that, and I don't know how I would have executed it on that, but that's certainly something that, that would have been, if I could have used it, that would have been very important. That would have been a difference, made a difference. And what would you say, Kerry, has been a book that you wish you would have read sooner? I, I want to tell you something. I, I do not read business books. I mean, uh, that's like, to me, that's like reading a, a book about how to golf. I mean, I, I mean, I think golfing is interesting. I don't do it very often because it takes so much time. But, I mean, I mean, ugh, I mean, ugh, no. Uh, I mean, <laughs> books. Okay. Um, uh, there's nothing I read a lot but I read a lot of history as they say history repeats so in terms of history I mean is there anything that you've read in that regard that maybe you know you found interesting to the way that you are analyzing things and 
applying that perspective? Hmm. I don't know. I think that it's the thing you learn from history is that there's a, a very, very large number of people that have a tendency not to think about, about what's going on and what the future is. And what that means from a marketing perspective is that you've got a lot of uh, material to work with. Because if people actually paid attention in the main, if people actually read, if people people actually understood history, their own history, I mean, their history of their own lives, I think uh, marketing would be much, much more difficult. But marketing's, it's, I think marketing's a challenge. It's intellectual, it's chess. I mean, it's intellectual chess. Um, but that's the that's what I would take from history is people typically and you're right it it may not repeat itself but it rhymes and uh, and people don't pay attention to that and so they have a tendency to fall in the make the same mistakes over and over and over again and and that's that's life unfortunately I'm sure we'll live through another pandemic <laughs> oh for sure for sure unfortunately yeah. But, uh, Gary, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, I think uh, it's easy to go to the website, uh, and that is unorthodoxventures.com. That's easy to do. I, I don't, uh, once you get to do that, I mean, we can talk on the phone. I mean, it's not a, I'm very open, I think, because, again, I feel like Starting and running businesses, uh, small businesses, is very, very difficult. And I, I mean, I talk to people all the time. I just talked to somebody yesterday afternoon, late yesterday afternoon. And and I think it's useful because I wish that's one thing that I wish that I had been able to, to hook into uh, would have been more of that in not talking to, you know, the president of your local bank. I mean, what the hell does he know about anything? But I mean, somebody that's actually doing something that relates to what you're doing or has done it uh, and can actually talk to you about about uh, tactical uh, problems. And and, uh, and I, I don't mind talking to anybody about that. I just think that's, I mean, you owe the community that. I certainly think I do. Amazing. Well, Kerry, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the uh, opportunity. I appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.